0: So back in the mid-1990s, when I was a teenager, I took my first trip to Israel with my local Jewish youth group. The trip had a huge impact on me, but I can't say that I remember too much about the day-to-day itinerary. But some things do stand out in my mind, and one of them is a visit we took to an old prison in the city of Akko, north of Haifa. It was originally built as a fortress by the Crusaders in the 12th century. Akko was the main Holy Land port in Christian hands back then. You can still see the original Crusader architecture. After the Ottomans took over Palestine in the 1400s, they used the fortress for various military purposes. And 500 years later, the British used it as a prison. Their first Jewish prisoner was Vladimir Jabotinsky for his actions during the 1920 riots. Then it was used for mostly Arab terrorists during the Arab revolt of 1936 to 1939. By the 1940s, the British started imprisoning and executing Jewish terrorists there. And that's where we come into the story. There's nothing like a dramatic prison break to fire up your team, demonstrate your skills, embarrass the other guys, and get a Hollywood movie made about you. And anyway, the Irgun was not about to let their guys languish in a British prison, not when the Yishuv was making a final push to get the British out of Palestine. And so in May of 1947, the Irgun carried out one of their craziest operations against the Akko prison, busting out Jews and Arabs alike. The raid was a success, but it was also costly several irgun fighters were killed and several more were captured so in another attempt to save their lives the irgun carried out a second operation so ruthless and morally ambiguous that it finally finally pushed britain over the edge rarely was there a more dramatic era in jewish history the 1945 to 1948 these episodes are super fun to write and it's just killing me to keep them to my self-imposed 25 minute limit But this era is just amazing for all the drama and all the stories. So here we go with Juana No.
1: I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world.
0: Following the bombing of the King David Hotel in July of 1946, the Irgun and the Lehi continued their insurgent campaign against the British. The Haganah was out. Ben-Gurion refused to continue participating in terrorist attacks, and instead the Haganah turned its attention to illegal immigration, which I'll talk about in a few more episodes from now. But unlike during the hunting season, Ben-Gurion refused to offer the British any help in stopping the Jewish resistance. In response to the King David bombing, The British cracked down on the Jewish community in Palestine, which we call the Yishuv. Curfews were imposed and mass arrests were made. General Sir Evelyn Barker, the commander of the British forces, banned his soldiers from engaging with any Jewish businesses or having any social interactions with Jews. He intended to, as he put it, punish the Jews in a way that the race dislikes by striking at their pockets and showing our contempt of them. Although he was soon removed from his post for anti-Semitism, his attitude had trickled down to many of his troops, further alienating the Jewish community. The Yishuv saw a lot of protests and strikes. Britain's counter-terrorist campaign imposed increasingly harsh restrictions on their lives, which just led to more resentment and more support for the resistance. These ordinary people hated the Lehi and condemned the Irgun's terrorism, but they hated the British more. So, as with all things, it was the innocent civilians who suffered the most. Britain all but imposed a police state on Palestine. Random house searches in the middle of the night, arbitrary arrests, military checkpoints, all designed to disrupt the ability of the Irgun and Alehi to move about easily and to punish the Yishuv for supporting them. But of course, it didn't work. The fact of the matter was, Jewish resistance was working. The Jews had learned from the Arabs that violence against the British would cause them to cave. The insurgency had exhausted the British. It was incredibly expensive, unpopular, deadly, distracting, harmed British pride and national morale. Plus, the British were faced with the same impasse that had existed since the 1930s. The Jews refused to compromise on attaining a homeland in Palestine, and the Arabs refused to compromise on ever allowing them to do so. After a long period of quiet, the Arabs also began to ramp up by violence. Mostly, they attacked their own in a struggle for power, but they also began small-scale attacks on the British and the Jews. It was pretty clear that the British mandate had no future. And so in February of 1947, Britain's foreign secretary, Ernest Bevin, announced that Britain was turning the whole conundrum over to the United Nations to figure out what to do with Palestine. The British no longer had the appetite to either keep the mandate indefinitely or to figure out who would get what when it ends. In the meantime, though, the British were still in charge and still had to maintain order amidst a population that desperately wanted them gone. <laughs> The Irgun and the Lehi continued their relentless attacks against the British, especially targeting critical infrastructure like oil refineries, police stations, railways, and government offices. Although they took care to avoid civilian casualties, they did target British police and soldiers. They developed the IED, the Improvised Explosive Device, which was usually a mine rigged to blow as military vehicles passed near it, killing the occupants. The British, of course, fought back, but every reprisal would elicit a reaction from the terrorists. If the British arrested Irgun fighters, a police station would be blown up a few days later. When the British abducted and tortured a resistance fighter, the officer in charge would be assassinated. After the Irgun bombed the officers' club in Jerusalem, killing 17 soldiers, the British imposed martial law and shot and killed a four-year-old Jewish girl standing in front of her home. And on and on and on. The British were forced to keep their soldiers inside fortified camps surrounded by barbed wire, but the Irgun managed to even get inside these sometimes. Nor did the Irgun or the Lehi limit their attacks to Palestine anymore. In October of 1946, the Irgun bombed the British embassy in Rome, wounding three people. In June of 1947, the Lehi mailed letter bombs to high-ranking government officials in London, including the Prime Minister all of which were harmlessly intercepted. But London was terrified. Virtually on lockdown, even the royal family was given extra security, all for fear of Jewish terrorism. And by the way, we're talking fairly small numbers here. The Irgun at this point had maybe four or 5,000 people, but probably only a third of that number were actual fighters carrying out attacks. The Lehi probably had just a few hundred guys. Amongst the Irgun fighters, though, were four guys whose fates would kick off the Irgun's spectacular operation to free the prisoners in Akko. Deep inside the prison in Akko, in April of 1947, these four Irgun fighters awaited their fate. They had all been captured during attacks on the British, Dov Gruner from Hungary was one of them. He had been smuggled into Palestine illegally in 1940 on a Haganah ship and spent six months in a British detention camp. After his release, he turned around and joined the British Army, fighting with the Jewish Brigade back in Europe. He returned to Palestine in 1946 and joined up with the Irgun. He was part of a group that attacked a British police station to steal weapons, and he was shot in the face during a firefight. He was caught, recovered in a hospital, and then put on trial with the charge of attempted murder. He refused to recognize the legitimacy of the court, since he refused to recognize the legitimacy of the British occupying Palestine after they had promised to create the Jewish homeland. But he was convicted and sentenced to death. Three other Irgun fighters received the same sentence under similar circumstances. There was a thought that the British wouldn't carry out the executions. They had last done so in 1938, when they executed Shlomo ben Yosef in the same prison I talked about him in episode 45 that had inspired such a backlash that some believed the British wouldn't risk doing that again but this time around things were different the British were angry and determined to punish the Jews they hanged all four of them in the Akko prison on April 16th 1947 <laughs> 90 Jewish fighters still imprisoned in Akko, the Irgun decided to bust out half of them. It wasn't going to be easy. The fortress had been around for 800 years, and it hadn't lasted that long because it was simple to just kick in the door, you know? In fact, the last person to successfully sack it was King Richard the Lionheart in 1193. Napoleon tried to take it in 1799, but he failed. It was the Alcatraz of Palestine, the most heavily guarded prison around. The imprisoned fighters there had tried to tunnel out, but that had been discovered. So the only way to pull this off was for the guys on the inside and the guys on the outside to somehow coordinate an operation together. I love this story. It's so clever. Eitan Livni was tasked with organizing the breakout from the inside. He'd have been arrested when I talked about last week, Operation Agatha, when the British retaliated for Jewish resistance operations by arresting as many fighters as they could. The Jews called it Black Sabbath. Wait for it. No, just kidding. I'm not gonna play Black Sabbath again. Aton Livny was sentenced to 15 years for his role in several irgun operations, including also from last week, the night of the trains. The plan was for the irgun to breach a wall from the outside, while Aton Livny and his handpicked team blew open all the doors between their jail cells and the interior of that wall. The irgun could only free 41 prisoners, 30 from the irgun and 11 from the lehi because that's how many safe houses they had in the area to hide their guys in. So Livni also had to choose who would stay and who would go. Jewish doctors and rabbis passed information back and forth between jailhouse visits and meetings with the Irgun's high command, and coded messages were hidden inside food and other contraband that was smuggled inside. So a woman might bring a loaf of bread for her son, inside of which she had baked scraps of paper with instructions on it. Or maybe she'd sewn the messages inside a collared shirt, or in the lining of pants that were given to the prisoners. The rabbi who oversaw the preparation of kosher food would tuck messages inside the slabs of meat, since non-Jewish, British, and Arab guards would not be permitted to touch it. That's also how they got plastic explosives into the jail. They hid them inside a large jar of jam. And Actually, a British cop discovered the explosives, but he was told that it was just hardened jam that hadn't had time to gel yet. Which he believed, because, I mean, who understands how Jewish food gets made? A young Irgun fighter named Dove Cohen was chosen to lead the operation from the outside. Dove was your typical Irgunic. Born and raised in Poland, he had been involved in Jabotinsky's revisionist Zionist youth movement from an early age. So he had soaked up that right-wing viewpoint about maximizing territory in Palestine and focusing on Jewish self-defense. When the Arab Revolt broke out in 1936 he made his way to Palestine to fight with the Irgun. And when World War II broke out, he left the Irgun to join the British army, fighting all over Africa and Italy, earning recognition for his fearlessness and military skill. But when the war ended, Dove was devastated to learn that his entire family back in Poland had been murdered by the Nazis. His grief turned to a desire for revenge and to a rage at the British for preventing Jews from immigrating to Palestine. So when he arrived back in Palestine in 1945, he was discharged from the British Army, only to turn around and join up with the Irgun in fighting this very same army he had been serving with the last five years. It was a complicated operation, but in short, Dove's plan was for one group to dress up like a British Army engineering unit, so that they would have an excuse to be seen working alongside the outside wall. Another group would dress up like Arabs and fire mortars at a nearby British checkpoint as a distraction. Yet another group mined every single road around the prison except for the escape route to be used by the Irgun so as to slow the British down and create chaos. Dressed in stolen British uniforms with stolen British army trucks, Dove Cohen led the group to the Akko prison on Sunday, May 4, 1947, It was all time to coincide with the afternoon exercise break when the Jewish prisoners would be sent out into the yard. And so in broad daylight, Dove and his team simply stopped by the outside wall, hitched up a bunch of ladders, climbed the top, and set their explosives without anyone questioning a thing. The explosion blew a massive hole in the wall. The prison was breached. Inside, the cell doors had opened a few minutes earlier. Half the prisoners went to the yard to create a distraction. Eitan Livni led the other group down the opposite hallway in the direction of the explosion. With their smuggled bombs, they blasted through all the doors until they arrived at the crumbled wall, raced out to the waiting trucks, and flew off at high speed. They left behind total mayhem. Fire, smoke, prisoners running every which way, the Arab guards completely confused and the British soldiers caught by surprise. In addition to the 41 Jews bolting out of the prison, 214 Arabs also found the hole in the wall and escaped. Now some claim that the Irgun intended to free the Arabs to force the British into spreading their forces even thinner in pursuit, but that seems unlikely. Many, if not most, of the Arab prisoners were there because of attacks against the Jews during the Arab revolt in the 1930s. Some serious terrorists managed to get out. Meanwhile, while the first part of the operation, getting everyone out, had gone fairly smoothly, the second part was not going so well for the Irgun. As one part of the convoy barreled out of Akko, they came upon a British unit that had been getting some R&R at the beach. They were just getting their act together to respond to the attack on a prison. They opened fire, and one of the trucks carrying the escaped prisoners crashed. So Dove Cohen and his squad came racing in to fight. Although the British soldiers hesitated when they saw the Irgun fighters still wearing British uniforms, they quickly realized that it was a ruse and they attacked. A fierce gun battle ensued. Standing his ground to cover the prisoners escape, Dove was struck down by 17 British bullets and died. The British managed to recapture everyone from that truck. Another part of the convoy was also struggling to get away. An Arab mob surrounded one of the trucks and blocked its path. Another truck wouldn't start and the fighters had to get out and push it down the road. The British were in hot pursuit. Like out of a movie, British soldiers were leaning out of their vehicles to fire at the escapees, managing to kill several of them. An entire Irgun squad that had stayed behind to cover the escape was captured. Eitan Livni was in the last Irgun truck which had a British vehicle right on its heels firing away. One of the Irgunniks tossed a sound grenade at the British forcing them off the road. Livni and his group got away. He met up at the Haganah Kibbutz Dalia, about an hour south and overnight walked 10 miles to a nearby town where he and other fighters were sent to secret hiding places throughout the country. at the end of the operation, of the 41 Jewish prisoners who escaped, 27 made it. Another six were killed, eight were captured. Of the Irgun force, three were killed, including the commander, Dove Cohen, and five were captured. One British soldier was killed and several more wounded. The New York Times called it one of the biggest jailbreaks in history. On the front page the following morning, May 5th, the Times wrote, Although one of the least costly attacks in British lives, the prison break was the most daring and sensational one yet made by the underground. The newspaper noted that it was payback for the four Jews who had been executed there in April. Menachem Begin called the operation heroic. The Jewish agency called it an irresponsible suicidal act. Either way, it was a massive morale boost for the Yishuv and a crushing blow to the British. Even they had to acknowledge that they looked like idiots and that their prestige had sunk to an all-time low. The British had already announced early in the year that they were intending to end the mandate and get out of Palestine, although there was no time frame. It was sort of indefinite. As for what would happen with Palestine, whether it would come under the control of either the Jews or the Arabs, the British left that up to the United Nations. The UN had formed a committee, as the UN does, to study the problem, and they arrived in Palestine on the same day as the prison break. And that was on purpose. The Irgun picked that day in a large part to impress upon the United Nations that they would stop at nothing to secure a Jewish state. It was a show of both strength and desperation, and it did not go unnoticed by the UN. Because coming back into our picture at this point are the Arabs, and our chief bad guy, Haj Amin al-Husseini. Having allied with Hitler during the war, he was in Germany when the war ended, and only barely managed to escape to neutral Switzerland. But the Swiss sent him back to Germany, where the French grabbed him, and more or less put him under house arrest in Paris, which, if you ask me, doesn't sound so bad, but he wasn't happy with it, and he soon escaped. He snuck into Egypt, where he set up shop in the royal palace. Remember, Husseini had used the Arab revolt in the 1930s to wipe out all his opposition, so his people were all still in place in Palestine. Now that he was back, the Palestinian Arabs fell under his influence once again, and again the British recognized him as a legitimate representative of the Arabs. He began organizing protests against the Zionists and made it clear that any UN decision in favor of the Jews, we met with violence. As the British mandate was now officially on its way out, the Arabs were determined that under no circumstances would the Jews be allowed to have their own state. And so the British found themselves, as usual, between a rock and a hard place. They were getting out of Palestine, although they didn't know when, and leaving its fate to the rest of the world to determine. But in the meantime, they still had to maintain law and order, run the place, fight against the Jewish insurgency, and now also prevent the Arabs and the Jews from fighting each other again. Morale was low, Frustration was high, money was flying out the door to support a massive military and police presence, and they still clung to the white paper of 1939, refusing to allow open Jewish immigration to avoid angering the Arabs. And as long as that was the case, the Yishuv is not going to let up. Because of the mixed outcome of the Akko prison escape, the Irgun had another big problem. Five of their number had been captured by the British and tried under the maximum penalties. Although two of them got life imprisonment because they were teenagers, three of the Irgun fighters were sentenced to death. So it was basically back to square one. The same situation that the Irgun faced in April that had kicked off the prison break. Except that trick couldn't be repeated again. The Irgun needed another plan to save those guys. Menachem Begin had one. It was totally ruthless, deeply morally ambiguous, and in Begin's own words, a cruel act. It would also be the straw that at long last broke the camel's back. After almost 30 years occupying Palestine, this would prove to be the final blow. The British would decide that it was time to go. That's next time. Lehitrot. See you later.